At the most basic level, DNA determines who we are, what we look like, the texture of our hair, the color of our eyes, the tone of our skin. DNA reveals relationships and tells the story of our ancestry, your mother's nose, grandfather's eyes, your uncle's smile. In the same way, your DNA forms who you are at a cellular level. This is true for every local congregation as well. You see, every church, including ACAC, has DNA that directs it. Building blocks that make up our identity, distinctives that define what is important to us, our vision, our mission, our values. The DNA of the church is evident in everything we do. Traces of it are left behind in every place we've been, in the smallest, seemingly inconsequential ways. It is replicated as each of us bind together as family, a family of one, serving the north side of Pittsburgh and beyond to change the world. And although we have a beautiful diversity and complexity within our family, the core of who we are, our mission remains the same, to follow Jesus in diverse community so the world will know the good news. How special that time is where we can join with those who are being baptized. So excited in these five weeks as we talk about ACAC DNA, who we are. And if you missed last week, I just strongly encourage you, especially if you are part of the ACAC family, again, whether you're a member or regular attender, um, we're talking about who God has uniquely called us to be. And it is so important that we understand the values and the mission that God has put upon us. So if you missed, I just encourage you to hop online and watch last week's message as we covered our first DNA. I'm gonna show you all of them here in a minute, but the first one was we are spirit led. And so with that, this week, someone in our congregation sent this funny picture to me. I thought this was pretty great. You know, I don't know if any of you have done ancestry.com, but when you're talking about DNA, if you're a Star Wars fan, um, R2D2 discovered that he was part uh, toaster and camcorder, trash can, hubcap, you know, these these are the self-replicating uh, characteristics that were passed down in him. Okay, you didn't find that as funny as I did. That's <laughs> quite all right. But the idea is that all of us, every living organism has self-replicating material in it. And so, you know, in our family, we recognize that you have maybe your mother's color of eyes or your dad's ears or personality and all of that. But the same is true for churches. And so what we have talked about last week and what we're looking at over the next four weeks are what is the DNA of this congregation? Through its 127 years of history, what has God uniquely called us to be? Because it's so important that as a part of the family that we know and we understand that. And so I introduced all of them last week. We're going to look at them together and let's do this. Would you read these with me, it's again, it's really important that these um, don't just become catchphrases as we talked about. Paul said, you know, they can't be, when you're talking about being spirit-led, it can't just be a good idea in your mind or a good sentiment in your heart. We've got to live this out. And so here you will, ACAC DNA, the essence of who we are. The first one is we are spirit-led. Two, we pursue God's presence and proclaim his truth. Three, we love people where they are. 
Four, we are a diverse community of faith. And five, we strive to become more like Jesus. Now, I understand for those four, because I haven't preached on them yet, you, you may have questions and we haven't dived deep into that. So I encourage you to come back over the next several weeks as we do that. But today we're going to look at the second one. We pursue God's presence and proclaim his truth. What are we talking about there? Two things. We are talking about worship, pursuing God's presence, and his word, proclaiming his truth. You see, we are to be people, our DNA, not just this congregation, not just the global church, but as followers of Jesus, our DNA is that we should be people of worship and we should be people of the word. But here's what happens. Oftentimes, individually and sometimes corporately, Jesus followers emphasize one over the other. And they end up living spiritually out of balance. And as I mentioned, sometimes even churches can become out of balance by overemphasizing one, maybe worship, or the other, the word. Let's be candid here for a moment. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. We just came out of a time of corporate worship, and now we are in the proclamation or the preaching of God's word. But some of you are more motivated by worship. What do I mean by that? Well, some of you are more, your DNA, if you will, is that you are more experiential, that you feel maybe more closely connected to the Father in times of corporate worship than maybe you do in this moment when a preacher is preaching. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, some of you just lean more that way. Others of you are more motivated by the word or by preaching or by teaching. You're more cognitive in nature. And maybe for you, you feel more connected to the Father when you're learning, when you're understanding, when you are learning and grasping the deep truths of God's word. Both are equally important. For most of us here, you're familiar with the story in the Bible of Jesus and the woman at the well from Samaria. And in this very unlikely encounter, Jesus actually has a lot to say about the significance of both worship and the word and their connection with one another. So we're going to look at John chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, I'm not going to read the entire chapter or text, but I encourage you, if you have your Bible on your phone or iPad, if you're watching at home online, to open that as we go through. For some of the text, they're going to put it on the screen or on the wall behind us. So as we go into John chapter 4 and this unique encounter, as I said, with Jesus and this woman from Samaria at the well, let me set that up. So at the beginning of John chapter 4, we discover that Jesus is leaving the area of Israel called Judea. Now Judea, if you had Israel here, Judea would be at the southern part, okay? And he was leaving, the Bible says, to go to Galilee. Galilee was the area of which Jesus was from. The majority of his public ministry was in Galilee. But sandwiched in the middle between Samaria, or I mean, I'm sorry, between the northern part between Galilee and between Judea is this area called Samaria. And so Jesus makes a pit stop at a well in this area called Samaria. So here we go. I'm going to go to John chapter 4, and I'm going to begin by just reading verses 7 through 9. So Jesus makes a pit stop at a well in Samaria. And his Bible says this, soon, in verse 7, soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water. 
And Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised for Jews refuse to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Okay, so you get the picture. Jesus has this encounter with a Samaritan woman and she is confused on why Jesus has just asked her for a drink. She's actually probably confused of why Jesus is even talking to her. And we discover that Jesus is alone with this Samaritan woman because his disciples were sent off into the city to buy food. So what's the big deal? Why is there tension? Because there's a lot of tension between the Jewish people of Judea, remember that's south, and the people of Samaria. Well, this conflict between Jews and Samaritans goes back hundreds of years. And to give you a little context in history, years earlier when Israel was split into two kingdoms, there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom when they split. And the northern kingdom were the Samaritans. That's where they are. And so years later, the Assyrians invade the northern part of Israel. They they invade the Samaria and they deport many of the Jews. And in that, the population grows of people who aren't Jewish people. And so to go fast and quick through all of this, basically there's a lot of intermarriages that happen and the population in Samaria weren't all Jewish people. And again, there was a lot of conflict because there were interracial marriages that were happening going against the Jewish beliefs. So the Samaritans in that part, they believed they were monolithic, meaning they believed in the one true God, okay? So they agreed with the Jewish people on believing with the one true God. However, the Samaritans did not agree or accept the entire Old Testament. So for example, The Samaritans only accepted or believed in the first five books of the Bible known as the Pentateuch. So they did not believe in the books of history, such as 1 and 2 Samuel, Kings, Chronicles. They did not accept any of the books of the prophets. They did not accept the wisdom literature like Psalms or Proverbs. Um, They only believed in the first five books. They only recognized the first five books of the Bible, in part because... In the, other books, in the other books of the Old Testament, those book, books recognized King David as the lineage to the future coming Messiah, and King David was from Judea. Are you getting the picture here? So there was a lot of conflict between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. And this goes back and forth, back and forth. One other example, um, last, last year, remember we covered the book of Haggai? Okay, and we talked about Nehemiah rebuilding the temple and Haggai was a part of that, Zerubbabel. Well, at one point, the Samaritans offered to help the Jews in Judea rebuild the temple. And basically, the Jews at that time said, thanks, but no thanks, and they shunned them. And so on and on, back and forth it goes, there was a lot of tension. So the fact that Jesus stopped at a well in Samaria and was speaking to a, a Samaritan woman, there was a lot of conflict there. But however, not only was there territory territorial conflict and tension between Jews and Samaritans, the fact that Jesus was meeting alone, not only with a Samaritan, but with a woman was super significant. For at that time, no self-respecting rabbi in the first century would have ever sat alone 
and spoken to a woman in that context. But Jesus delights in breaking traditional cultural barriers that separates people. He takes risks, he reaches out and he speaks. We could do a whole sermon on just that, but we're not today. So this Samaritan woman can't figure out why Jesus is even talking to her, let alone asking her for a drink of water. So now you understand the conflict, let's continue on. In verse 10 through 15, Jesus replies to her after she asks for a drink, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you, Jesus introduces, living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think that you are greater than our, than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? So this well was dug or initially initiated by Jacob years and years before. And she says, how can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replies, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes this living water that Jesus is talking about, a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman says, give me this water, then I'll never thirst again. I won't have come here. I won't have to come here to get water. So Jesus asks her for water, and or this woman asks Jesus for the water, and she thinks he's talking about natural water, like spring water, like there's some miraculous water that he's going to give her that she's never going to have to come back to the well again. Water for her jar, not water for her soul. And we understand that Jesus isn't talking about physical water like you and I drink. He is, he is talking about her experiencing new life. And she's about to experience this through the living water that only Jesus can give. So what is Jesus talking about? What is this living water? What is its significance for us? Think about this, all throughout scripture from Genesis to Revelation, what does water represent? I'll answer it for you. Water is a symbol of God's presence. Let me explain. In Genesis, God's spirit at creation moves over what? The waters. In Exodus, floodwaters rise and they were a cleansing instrument of the wickedness that was happening during Noah's time. Later on in Exodus, when Moses leads the people out of slavery from Egypt, God separates the what? Waters. His people are rescued through water, and then they are rescued by the water closing and wiping out the Egyptians. All throughout the books of the prophet of the Old Testament, droughts, represented punishment for sin, but it was rain, aka water, that represented God's blessing, his presence. And even in the book of Revelation, there is a river of water, a river of life flowing from the very throne of God. So getting back to this woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, unbeknownst to her, as she asked for this living water, from Jesus. She is about to experience the power of God's presence, and it's about to get really uncomfortable for her. Because here's the thing. 
when those who are not followers of Jesus, those outside of the faith, when they experience God's presence, it can get uncomfortable because conviction comes, conviction of sin. Let's continue in John chapter 4, verse 16 through 19. So she asked for this water, and all of a sudden, 16, Jesus kind of flips the script and changes the, the mood and the question. She, and he says to her, go get your husband, Jesus told her. And she replies, well, I, I don't have a husband, the woman replied. And Jesus, with a very strong mic drop moment, said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. And her response is, sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. You catch what happens there? Suddenly, she tastes the living water, the very presence of God through the prophetic power of the spirit that is in Jesus. Jesus reads her mail. Like, can you imagine that? One moment, she's asking for water, thinking that her thirst is going to be quenched. And all of a sudden, Jesus flips the script and prophetically speaks into her deepest, darkest secrets. Going, yeah, you don't have one husband, you have had five, and the man you're living with now is not your own. Can you imagine that moment? If all of a sudden Jesus read your mail what no one else knew? She experiences the prophetic power of the Spirit of God living with Jesus. So she's experienced this. However, her understanding and her knowledge of who Jesus is is lacking because she doesn't see Jesus rightfully for who he is as the Messiah. She sees him as a prophet. Let's continue on in our story. Verse 20 through 22. Sir, the woman said, okay, she said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, and here we go again. She's changing, she's, she's uh, changing the subject. Tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship? While we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worship. Jesus replies, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. So she changes the subject. She goes from, ha from wanting to have a conversation about Jesus addressing the sin that is in her life. She just tasted this living water, this prophetic spirit that is within Jesus. And she changes the subject to worship. And right here in these next few verses, when we talk about pursuing God's presence and proclaiming his truth, worship and the word, Jesus gives his church and gives us today a lot of great understanding about what worship and the word is and how it's interconnected. You see, both groups of people at that time, the Jewish people and the Samaritans of that day, they understood that God had commanded them to set a location, a place aside where worship, the worship of God where his name would be made known. But they had serious disagreements about its physical location. For the Jewish people, those living in the south of Judea, where Jesus was from, 
Remember, I said they recognized King David as the lineage to the Messiah. And remember, it was King David's son Solomon who built a temple in Jerusalem. To the Jewish people in Judea, the most holy place in all of the earth was the temple in Jerusalem. But remember, the Samaritans did not recognize the majority of the Old Testament. Are you all with me? Okay, I know I'm, I'm getting ready to land a plane, so just stick with me here. The Samaritans didn't recognize that. They only recognized the first five books of the Bible. So for them, they believed that the holy place of worship or location was where Abraham built an altar, which was at Shechem, at the bottom of Mount Gerizim. So there was differences in their theology, if you will, about the location of worship. And what is happening is Jesus is getting baited into a worship war. To put it in modern days, she's basically saying, Jesus, are you on the contemporary music side or are you on the hymn side? <laughs> He's being baited. However, Jesus is not going to engage in this divisive religious battle, but instead he brings a new theology of worship for the people then and for us today. A major shift in worship is about ready to happen as Jesus is heading to the cross soon and will be offering himself as a sacrifice for humanity. Think of this, up to that point, before Jesus goes to the cross, before he's resurrected, before Acts 2, up to this point, God's presence was found in tents, in tabernacles, and in temples. And there were only certain people allowed into the holy place, and that was the representative God priest. Ordinary people could not go into God's presence. Only a select few. And God's presence was in tents, tabernacles, and temples. And Jesus is saying there is a new day coming, and there's going to be a dawn in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out, and instead of God's presence filling tents, tabernacles, and temples, God's Spirit now will be in all of the hearts of men, and everyone will have access to God's presence. Jesus is not going to get baited in that moment to a worship war about location because he's flipping the script on a theology of worship. Jesus is about to change it. So here we go in our main text for today, verses 23 and 24, verses that are probably very familiar that you've heard. We're going to put them up here. The time is coming, Jesus says, and it is indeed here now. He's addressing this baiting that this woman is doing with him at the well. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. How many desire today to be a true worshiper of God? Okay, hopefully all of us, amen. So he says... There's a day coming when the true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. He continues, for God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So if you raised your hand and you desire to worship in spirit and truth, we need to understand what that is. What does it mean to worship in the spirit? And what does it mean to worship in the truth? Spirit and truth worship is empowered by God, yet informed by the revelation of God. Let me go deep into that just for a few moments. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, 
fuels our worship. The Holy Spirit should fuel our worship. Let me get really practical about our corporate times of worship as we pursue God's presence. What do I mean when I say the Spirit fuels our worship? Our worship, when we come together, what the, the, when John led us today, in that time, it cannot be heartless, passionless, or just done in rote or habit. Spirit fuels our worship. The woman at the well, that Samaritan woman, got a taste of living water when Jesus read her mail. When we come for times of corporate worship, we are coming to taste and experience the living water of God, God's presence. So Lord, help us if we come in and we stand like statues and our hearts are motionless and our response, can we just get through the song? This, I don't like this song. I don't, I wish you would do this or I wish you would do that. If you need a song to engage your heart and spirit with God's presence, there is a deeper issue than songs. We must taste the living water in our times of worship. These are opportunities for us to encounter the Spirit. Three chapters later in the Gospel of John from the story in John 4, Jesus speaks more about this living water. In John chapter 7, on the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and he shouted to the crowds, Anyone who is thirsty may come to me, Jesus says. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare, rivers of living water will flow from his heart. And when he said living water, this is John speaking, the living water, he was speaking of the spirit. Here John is connecting again, the living water to spirit, who would be given out to everyone believing in him. But the spirit, John said, had not, come, had not been given yet because the Jews had not yet entered into his glory. What is this verse talking about? Acts chapter 2. John is saying that living water is talking about the spirit and that spirit hadn't come because Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead yet and gone into glory. But in Acts chapter two, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, his people now have living water. So worshiping in spirit, when I say the spirit fuels our worship, our hearts should come ready. When the first note is played beyond that, when our voices are raised, our hearts should be a spirit of, Father, I want to experience and taste your living water. <laughs> However, we can't stop there. We need also to experience truth as well. Because while the spirit fuels our worship, the word informs our worship. It's Holy Scripture, the Bible, God's truth informs our worship. The Spirit fuels it. The Bible informs it. So just as our worship can't be rote, it can't be habitual, it can't be just emotionless or going through and, 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 and rote, again, our worship cannot lack understanding or theology. The Samaritan woman eventually, while she experienced living water, she eventually came to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. So while she experienced the power of Jesus, his spirit, that prophetic spirit that was living in him, she didn't have an initial understanding, but she did later. What we say, 
what we sing, what we believe about God matters. And here's why it's so important. So while when we come into corporate worship, when we come into corporate worship, and we should be dynamic, the Bible is filled about singing and dancing and shouting and lifting our hands and clapping. Here is why the, the, the word of God informing our worship is so important. Because how many know there are days when you are not going to feel like worshiping? Okay? On the days on the Saturday nights, on the Sunday mornings, when you walk in here and you don't feel like it, you rely on the revelation of God's word because you understand who he is even though you don't feel it. So the revelation of God is so important. What we sing and say matters. The psalmist said the very essence of your words, speaking of God, is truth. All your regulations will stand forever. The Bible says that faith comes by what? Faith. We talked about it a lot last year. It is by faith. Faith being more than hoping on outcomes. Faith being loyalty and allegiance to a king and a kingdom. The Bible says faith comes by what? Faith does not come by singing. Faith does not come by feeling. Faith does not come by emotional experiences. Faith comes by hearing and hearing what? Word of God. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. So while the spirit fuels our worship, the word informs our worship and both are absolutely necessary equally. So going back, as I wrap this up, to those of you who are more motivated, maybe by worship, maybe again, that's where you feel more connected to the father in those times of worship. You're more experiential in your spirit. Here's the thing. You need to understand that right thinking, doctrine, and theology matters. Content matters because you're not always going to feel it. And if you're only basing your faith on feelings, you're missing half of it. The revelation of God, knowing who he is, will carry you through when your emotions don't. So to have spirituality, to have experience, no matter how profound it is, an experience or spirituality that is not based on truth cannot be trusted. And to those of you that are motivated by the word, by cognitive thinking and learning, here's the thing. Experiencing the power of God matters. Genuine encounters with Jesus. The spirit matters. Tasting the living water matters. To have correct theology, to have sound doctrine and orthodoxy matters. But to never have tasted the living water, to never have experienced the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, you are missing a vital component of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Pursuing God's presence, his spirit and proclaiming his truth, understanding the revelation of God. Jesus says his worshipers must worship him in spirit and truth. And this means the heart and the head must both be engaged. So when it comes to worship, God's spirit fuels it and his word informs it. And here's what happens. When we worship in spirit and truth, we see it in John chapter 4. 
Here's what happens at the end of the story, if you will. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus. Why? Because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. This was the taste of the living water. This was her experience. And it goes on. So when they came out to see him, that's Jesus, they begged him to stay in their village. Jesus stayed for two days long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Did you catch that? It wasn't just the experience. They needed to hear his message and then believe it. Spirit, truth. Worship in the word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not just because of what you have told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. And now we know that he is indeed the savior of the world. So when I talk about our DNA, why it's so critical that we pursue God's presence, that we be people that experience dynamic worship when we come together, that we come thirsty and hungry for that living water, that we genuinely have encounters with the Spirit. When you combine that, we cannot leave out the proclamation of the word, the revelation of God, because it is that that informs our worship. We need both, worshiping in spirit and truth. Why? Because when you have both, the world is changed. People experience Jesus, the one who is the savior of the world. Lives are transformed through the presence of God and the proclamation of his word. This church has an incredible history (laughs) of pursuing God's presence. As a former worship pastor, one of the things I love is that our congregation is expressive in worship. And as long as I'm pastor, I'm going to do all that I can that we never lose that. We need to be expressive in our worship. We need to encourage those to to clap their hands, to sing. For some of you, I know it gets uncomfortable because you're more reserved. And that's okay. No one's going to force it on you. Can't be fake. It can't be phony. But we also can't be fearful of the genuine encounter. He's not here today, and I don't mean to call him out, but Chester, I love him. One of our other services, he just comes and he worships and he's here. I love watching and seeing Chester worship because he's tasting of the living water. But also, it cannot just be about experiential. We need the proclamation of God's word. There's one thing I knew about, the con- about this congregation was the history this church has of proclaiming truth, of solid biblical teaching. And you keep praying for me that I keep that bar up there, okay? Would you stand with me today? And I did this out of order. I should have asked you the question before I had you stand. So if you don't agree, you can sit down. (laughs) I I didn't mean to do a double switch move. I asked you to stand last week. Those of you who were part of this congregation who said, who would stand and say you are willing to be a part to make sure that we don't have mission drift, that the DNA is always that we are spirit-led. Now I'm asking for the same thing. We're going to do this each week. That you would be committed, that we would be people who pursue God's presence with all of our heart, but we also proclaim his truth. That we would be a church that always worships in spirit and in truth. If that's you, just remain standing. Not as a commitment to me, but again, as a commitment to the Father. So Lord, you see us today. 
Lord, you were baited once. Your son, Jesus, was baited into a worship war. May we never take that bait. (laughs) But I pray that our worship would be fueled by your spirit. I pray that, Father, when we come and when we lift our voice corporately and sing, that there would be a season of experiencing the living water that you have for us in such a powerful way. I pray that those like the Samaritan woman who didn't know you and that her mail was read and she was convicted of her sin in the presence of God, that that would happen in this place under the power of your presence. But Lord, I also pray that your truth, your word, the revelation, the proclamation of your word would be what sustains us, would be the foundation of our worship. So that when we don't feel it, when trying times come, it wouldn't be fake or just emotionalism, but we would understand who you are because we recognize that our allegiance to your kingdom, our faith to your kingdom comes by hearing the proclamation of the word. So may this church forever be a church that worships in spirit and in truth. Amen. You may be seated.